As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Ever been that mad? (laughs) Ever been slighted? Ever been offended? Ever been made to feel like you were not welcome? Or have you ever been outright rejected? Maybe with an extra layer by somebody you thought was beneath you? How dare they? Or perhaps it was even worse. Maybe it was one of your kids that got rejected, that got slighted, that got made to feel unwelcome. That's where the rubber meets the road for me. It's like, I got pretty thick skin until you start messing with my kids. And then, I mean, that's where I got to pull in the reins. That's where I got to take a step back. So wherever that rubber meets the road for you, have you ever been in this place where you were so angry, so frustrated, that you might be willing to call down fire from heaven on somebody? One last little bit of meddling. Maybe you were behind the wheel. That's where it often happens for me. If I'm going to want to, something's going to well up in me and I'm going to want to call down fire, I might be behind the wheel. It's possible. You see, we're coming down the home stretch of our Holy Fire series. We're in week four out of five week series. And we have been looking at Old Testament and New Testament examples and teachings and settings where Holy Fire came into the mix. And today we're going to be talking about what not to do with holy fire. We should not be a bunch of little James and Johns running around calling down holy fire on the people who offend us. That's the Cliff's Notes version of this sermon. I almost titled it Adventures in Missing the Point. (laughs) Because this is James and John. They have been with Jesus for some time now. They have been following him around. They have been watching him heal people. They have been watching him heal people from outside of God's chosen people. They know what his mission is. And yet in this moment, this is their response. It's to want to use the power of God to destroy somebody who is mean to them. It's astounding how unchristlike we can be in Jesus' name, isn't it? If we're honest. And as I reflected on this, I thought about, you know, the thing that probably gets the fastest reaction out of me is when I see my kids going at it with each other, right? Any parents in the room? Like, my boys are really good kids, and they hardly ever take a swing at each other, right? But it happened recently, and I won't go into details. But I saw one of them, it was more of a SWAT, but I guarantee it got a reaction, a pretty quick reaction. And I can only imagine how it breaks God's heart to see his kids fighting with each other, slighting each other. And we have to remember how we got this whole thing started, this whole series started, that God gives his power for his purposes not for ours, especially when our purposes are so far 
from his. So I want to look at this passage. We're going to walk through it a little bit slower and we're going to learn what we can learn about the context that we find it in and about what that might be saying to us today. So if you have a Bible, you can turn it to Luke chapter 9 verses 51 through 56. If you're in the room here and you would like to use one of our Bibles, they're in the seats in front of you and you can turn to page 1611. But before we get into that, I want to give you a little bit of context about the gospel of Luke. You see, a couple of years ago, I did a series titled Jesus is the Subject, and we looked at each of the Gospels, and we talked about how each of the Gospel writers had a specific audience and and even a specific purpose, and that's why there are four Gospels, because they speak to different audiences with different purposes, but they all tell us about Jesus. Jesus is the subject of each of the Gospels. And in Luke's Gospel, he's writing primarily to a Gentile audience, to the world outside of the immediate context, and he helps them understand some things about Jesus. In fact, there's an ESV footnote in the English Standard Version Study Bible, in its introduction to Luke, which these introductory articles are so helpful before you go reading into a whole gospel, see what they're saying is significant about this gospel and all kinds of interesting details. But one of the first things that is said about the gospel of Luke is that Luke wrote this gospel so that his readers would understand that the gospel is for all, both Jews and Gentiles alike. Since Jesus is the promised one of God as prophesied in the Old Testament and as attested through God's saving activity in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So that's Luke's purpose in writing this gospel. Matthew wrote predominantly to a Jewish audience, Mark to a Roman audience, John to a broad audience after the other three gospels had been written and had been in circulation. And there were some things that he wanted to make clear about Jesus. So they each had a purpose and they each had intentionality. Luke's purpose is to write to a Gentile audience, to to the broader culture of the world that would have been outside of Israel and Judah and Judea. And he does so with a specific purpose of helping them to understand that the gospel is for all, not just for Jews, but for Jews and Gentiles alike. And so that is, Mark, that is Luke's purpose. And this passage that we're looking at today opens a new section. Scholars will take a gospel and they will outline it to see where the different sections are. And so Luke has a very unique opening. It's different than all the other gospels. And he pre- provides details about, about Jesus' birth that are absent from some of the others. And then he has this section of Jesus' calling and his temptation. And right before this passage, there's an extended section called the Galilean ministry, where Jesus is doing miracles and teachings in the area of Galilee, which was north of Jerusalem, north of Samaria, kind of on the upper fringes of what would be the original Old Testament nation of Israel. And then he begins what is known as the journey to Jerusalem. This is the longest section in the Gospel of Luke. It starts here in chapter 9, verse 51, and it goes all the way to the end of chapter 19. Over a third of the Gospel of Luke is this journey to Jerusalem when Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. And we see that very clearly in verse 51. And here in Luke chapter 9, we find this story in a broader context as well, that at the beginning of Luke chapter 9, Jesus sends out the 12 disciples and he gives them instructions as they go out to do the ministry that they have seen Jesus doing in Galilee. And then they return and they feed the 5,000 and Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. 
Then there's the Mount of Transfiguration, a healing story. And then Jesus predicts his own death a second time, and that is followed immediately by the disciples arguing about which one of them is the greatest. Right? I know. It's hard to believe (laughs) how Jesus can predict that he's going to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die on a cross, and they respond to that with an argument about which one of them is the greatest. And I mention that because that happens immediately before the story that we're going to see here today. And I think that adds an extra layer to James and John's suggestion that they should call down fire from heaven because they've just been in an argument with their friends about which one of them is the greatest. And so they're probably trying to posture themselves before Jesus. Hey, we're, re- we're the real deal. Everybody knows it's James and John, right and left, okay? Like, we're even willing to call down fire from heaven because these people offended you. We're willing to do that in your honor. And that's what James and John find themselves at the end of, James, of Luke chapter 9. But after this story, there's a famous passage on the cost of following Jesus, and then he sends out the 72, not just the 12, but the 72, and he gives them instructions as well. And I think that the, the timing is important. That's why I mention it. So that's where we kind of pick up the story in Luke 51, which I read at the outset. I'll read it again now, and we'll stop uh, every verse or two and and call out a few things. The first there in Luke 9, 51, as the time approached for him, for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. This is important. This is that statement that introduces us to this lengthy chunk of of Luke's gospel known as the journey to Jerusalem. And I love the New King James or the King James version of this. It says that Jesus set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. He resolutely set out. He set his face like a flint. He would not be deterred from going to Jerusalem. And he knew what awaited him there. He's just predicted his death and his suffering. And that's the context for him resolutely setting out to go to Jerusalem. He knew that suffering and death were at the end of this journey, and he went anyway. And then in verse 52 and 53, we see the context here. He set, sent his messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to, set, to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading For Jerusalem, you see, there were tensions, to say the very least, between Samaritans and Jews. There was a grudge, there was a feud that went back centuries, and over that time, it had developed into hatred, racism, bigotry, to the point that that a couple of good Jewish boys would want to call down fire on a whole village of Samaritans. And don't think that the Samaritans wouldn't have done the same if they had the chance. There was, there was deep-seated hatred between Jews and Samaritans. And this all went back to after the Assyrian exile when the northern kingdom of Israel was carted off to Assyria and taken there. When they returned, the king of Assyria brought foreigners to settle and they intermarried with the people that had been inhabiting the land, the northern kingdom of Israel. And over time, they developed their own temple and their own worship practices. They had their own version of the Pentateuch. They had rewritten Scripture for themselves. And they had their own history. And devout Jews wouldn't even travel 
through Samaria. That's how deep this ran. They would go out of their way to not even set foot on Samaritan soil. That's kind of like if you've got to get to Denver and you refuse to go through Nebraska. (laughs) You'll go around through the Black Hills and drive an extra hour or two that way, or you'll go all the way down through Kansas City and across on 70, but you're you're gonna waste hours and money to avoid passing through Nebraska. I got no problem with Nebraska, just so anybody knows, don't. But that's what we're talking about here. That's how they felt about Samaritans. And the Samaritans felt the same way about the Jews. And they probably noticed that these men were Jewish. They had physical characteristics that would have let on that they were Jewish. And it's close to Passover. So it's very easy to kind of connect the dots and say, oh, where are you headed? Jerusalem. Interesting. No vacancy. (laughs) We don't want you here. We don't want to help you get to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. We believe that we're supposed to worship somewhere else and that you Jews don't want to have anything to do with us. So go ahead and move on down the road. And this is all underscored by the ancient hospitality code that was very strongly in favor of providing hospitality to anybody who showed up at your door. This was a a thing of honor for people at this time that they would have been honored to provide hospitality. And what's ironic about the Samaritans rejecting Jesus is that he's on his way to Jerusalem to die for them too. They don't know this, but he's on his way to Jerusalem to die on the cross for everyone, for all people, for them included. And they reject him. Hospitality. And now is where we get into the real crux here. In verse 54, we read, When the disciples James and John saw this, They asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? This is their response. In fact, some manuscripts, there's a little footnote uh, in most translations that just directs your attention to the bottom of the page where you can read what else might be said about that. And it says, as Elijah did. As Elijah did. So not only are they kind of grandstanding and positioning themselves as, as the right and the left, the number one, number two, They're even throwing in some Old Testament history. Like, there's biblical precedent for this. We can find it. We can justify it right here. In my mind, I don't know about yours, but my mind went immediately to 1 Kings 18. Not just because Pastor Jake from Resilient Church preached on that here, but that's where my mind would have went anywhere. Anybody else? You thinking of Elijah on the Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal? That's not what they're referring to. I I learned something. It was exciting to, to see what was being referred to there. It's actually 2 Kings chapter 1. There's a fascinating parallel. In 2 Kings chapter 1, Elijah has prophesied against King Ahaziah, who's the king of Samaria or the nation of northern Israel at that time. And when he does this, Ahaziah, who was spoken against for his idol worship. This is Ahab's son. Ahab was a terrible king. Ahaziah took it to a new level. And he's worshiping idols. And Elijah speaks out against that. And so Ahaziah summons Elijah, and he sends a captain of 50. So a man, a a captain, a leader in his military with 50 men to go get one prophet. And it's a sign of intimidation. And Elijah basically just shrugs and says, if I'm the man of God, let holy fire come from heaven and consume you. And it happens. 
And so Ahaziah hears about it. He sends another captain and another 50 men as this show of force. And Elijah says it again. And they burn up again. I mean, it's like, wow. Okay, so then the king sends a third captain of 50. And that guy comes in reverence, in humility, in deep respect, and bows before Elijah because he's trembling with fear. He's afraid he's going to be next. And Elijah goes with him. Prophesies the same thing to Ahaziah. It doesn't really turn out the way that he wants to. But this, incidentally, is the last story that we have about Elijah, the great prophet Elijah, before he is taken up to heaven in what? Chariots of fire. So holy fire was a big part of Elijah's ministry, particularly the end of his ministry. And the Life Application Bible has a comment on this verse that I found to be really pertinent. It says... When the Samaritan village did not welcome Jesus and his disciples, James and John didn't want to stop at shaking the dust off their feet. That's what Jesus had told them to do at the beginning of this chapter. When he sent out the twelve to do ministry in Galilee, he said, if they reject you, just shake the dust off your feet and move on. Well, James and John don't want to just shake the dust off their feet, right? They wanted to retaliate by calling down fire from heaven on the people, as Elijah had done on the servants of the wicked king of Israel. When the others reject and discorn us, we too may feel like retaliating. We must remember that judgment belongs to God and we must not expect him to use his power to carry out our personal vendettas. Great insight, great application. We're supposed to shake the dust off our feet and move on. James and John were supposed to shake the dust off their feet and move on. Why? Because Jesus wasn't about to retaliate here. He wasn't about to retaliate on the cross either. That was not his way. And as he continues in verse 55 and 56, he basically tells them, guys, that is so B.C. That is so B.C. That's not how we do things anymore. That is so the way things were done before Christ. But there is a Christ. You know I am the Christ. Peter made that clear. You saw me transfigured. James and John were there on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw it. They knew what was going on. They knew what his program was. They knew what he was after. And so this, the scripture tells us in verse 55 and 56, pretty short conclusion to this little story. It tells us, but Jesus turned and rebuked them and they went to another village. Well, there's a couple of key words there and there's also another footnote, but we'll get to that. There's a couple of key words there in verse 55. Jesus turned and rebuked them. He turned and he rebuked them. And that's interesting to me, first, that he turned. What did we hear at the beginning of this story in verse 51, just a few seconds ago? That he had set his face to Jerusalem. He was going to Jerusalem. He had to turn from his mission to deal with these knuckleheads. And I just got to wonder, how often does he kind of have to turn from his mission for me to deal with my nonsense, to deal with me getting my feelings hurt, getting bent out of shape? How often does he have to do this for us because we're so busy fighting and hating and despising each other when we're really supposed to be loving each other? They became a distraction to him, to his mission. Peter did this once too, right? When Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan. And so the big three, Peter, James, and John, all managed to mess this up, all managed to get Jesus momentarily off mission. But he didn't just turn, he also rebuked them. That's a powerful word. 
Don't just read over that. Rebuked is a very stern warning or admonishment. That's what that means in the original language, a very stern warning or admonishment. The exact same word is used when Jesus rebukes a demon and calls them out of somebody to deliver somebody. He is not just scoffing at them and moving on. He's not having a chuckle. (laughs) No, he lets them have it. He says, are you kidding me? You want to call down fire from heaven? He rebukes them. He warns them strongly. And the primary text doesn't tell us what he said, but there are footnotes in most Bibles and most translations that expand the end of verse 55 and add some to verse 56. And there's a little rabbit trail we could go on here about biblical translation, but long story short, when they're translating Scripture, they take all the manuscripts that they have and those that have the strongest dating and those that are most consistent, and they build the Scripture that we read from multiple manuscripts and from multiple uh, sources, biblical text sources. And they go with what is the most consistent throughout all the manuscripts. But when there are a lot of manuscripts that suggest something else might have been a part, they footnote it so that we can see that. And in this case, I think the footnote is insightful for us because the footnote tells us that the end of verse 55 and all of verse 56 are are slightly different in some manuscripts where Jesus says, you don't know what kind of spirit you're of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. He starts out by rebuking them, warning them strongly, saying, you don't realize how sin-sick your hearts can be. You don't realize what spirit you're of when you suggest, let's call down fire from heaven on a whole village of people because they were mean to you. And he contrasts that with his heart, with his mission, which is not to destroy but to save. Luke 19.10, at the end of this lengthy period, as he's making his way to Jerusalem, comes to the very end in Jericho, he meets a little guy, Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Somebody knows? And he's a tax collector. He's been cheating his people. He betrayed his people and joined with the Roman government and profited greatly from it. And Jesus saves him, even him. What was Luke's purpose in writing his gospel? The gospel's for everybody, even somebody like Zacchaeus. And at the end of that little interchange, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Whether they're within the people of God or outside the people of God, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Not to destroy, but to save. We sang the song this morning, He is the God who saves. And He rescued me, not because I deserved it, Because I needed it. And Jesus came to seek and save the lost, not because some deserved it and others didn't, but because we needed it. And Jesus is saying, that's my mission, not to destroy people. In fact, I'm willing to be destroyed for them. My mission is not to destroy people, but to save them. And I'm camping out on this point because we live in a world that is pushing people to the extremes and people on both sides Leaders on both sides of those extremes are way too willing to destroy the lives of the people on the other side. Right and left. Blue and red. They're pushing as many people to the extremes as they can and then they're willing to destroy the lives of the people on the other side. And way too many Christians are way too willing to align with that. 
And Jesus says to us, you don't know what spirit you're of. It's not my spirit. My spirit's not here to destroy people, but to save them. And we're way too willing to wage war with the weapons of the world instead of the weapons of the kingdom, which are prayer and love and grace and mercy. You see, if we're in Christ, we've sworn allegiance to a king who died for all. In fact, Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the life I live now. And I live it by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me and who rescued me and is willing to rescue the people that disagree with me and are maybe even trying to destroy me. He came and he died to bring reconciliation, not separation, to bring unity, not division. And he never defended his own rights. He didn't do it here. He didn't do it in his mock trial the night before he died. He didn't do it from the cross. But he said, follow me. Right after this passage, he says, follow me. It's not easy, but follow me. It doesn't make sense according to the ways of this world, but follow me. And not only that, but you'll receive power to follow me. You'll receive power to live my life and die my death so that others can hear. That's who what he gives us power for, to follow him, to be his witnesses. And it's natural to ask, are you sure that's going to work? doesn't seem like it's going to work. It doesn't seem like a good strategy. It doesn't seem like a good political strategy, does it? And yet we're sitting here 2,000 years later, along with about 2.5 billion people who have come into Christianity, who have come into following Jesus because it did work. Because they didn't wage war the way the world wages war. They toppled the Roman Empire by loving people by not defending their rights. And we're so smart, we think it's not going to work for us today, but it will. And we can trust him. We can trust him to be both loving and just. He came full of grace and truth. We can trust him. In fact, I just read about it this morning, Revelation 20 where they call down fire from heaven on Satan and all of his armies. Everything that opposes God is going to burn, okay? He did not delegate that to us. He asked us to love people. Satan and his armies will be thrown into the lake of fire forever. There is fire at the end. We don't need to start doling it out right now. In fact, Isaiah 55 and Revelations 21 and 22, the message is clear. Come. That's what Jesus says, come, all who are willing, all who are thirsty, come. And he gives us the power to be his witnesses, to be ambassadors for Christ. You know what ambassadors do? They go into foreign territory and they represent the sovereign that sent them. That's what we've been called to do, to be in foreign territory, in a lost and broken and dying world, as an ambassador for Christ, as a representative for Christ, to live his life and die his death, and to proclaim his good news to anyone and to everyone, that others might be saved and reconciled to God. Ready for some good news? (laughs) There's good news. 
This James and John that we're talking about, you want to know the good news about James and John? That John, that's God so loved the world, John, right? That's the guy who wanted to call down fire from heaven on the Samaritan villages. The same guy that wrote what is likely the most memorized sentence in the world. Think about that for a minute. Suggest a different one to me. Because most of those two and a half billion Christians know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He goes from wanting to call down fire on a village that hurt his feelings to writing the most memorized sentence in the world about love. Tell me you can't change. Tell me we can't change. This is good news. This is the same guy that wrote that God is love. And if you were here on Father's Day, which most of you weren't, I saw the attendance numbers. That was the worst Sunday all summer was Father's Day. I don't know, you all fishing with that or, or something, I'm not sure. But you missed an incredible sermon on 1 John chapter 4, which says that God is love. Will Calhoff brought an amazing message on Father's Day. And if you missed it, I really want to strongly encourage you to go out and find it. Find it on our podcast, find it on YouTube, find it on Facebook, and listen to that message. Because he, he, he just really spoke powerfully to this idea that God is love. Here's what he says. Dear friends, this is, this is the guy that wanted to call down fire on the Samaritans. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. It was an autobiographical statement for himself. There was a time in his life when he didn't know God. He had spent two years walking around with him, watching him heal people, watching him, listening to the messages that he spoke, and he didn't know God. But something changed. In verse 12, he says, No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Just think about that for a second. That God's love could be made complete in us. That's one of those kind of mind-blowing statements in Scripture. And yet that's what we're called to. That's what we're invited to. And the disciples did receive supernatural power at Pentecost. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And did they use it to, to burn up Samaria? No. Did they use it to call down fire on the people that had just crucified Christ? No. They were there at the cross when he said, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. And so instead of calling down fire on their enemies, they used the power of God to declare God's praises in every language. So that people from all the nations of the world that were there could go back home and tell the people something good has happened. God has come. And James also stayed resolute. In fact, he was the first Christian martyr. He was the first person in Acts chapter 12, verse 2, we're told that he was, he was killed by Herod as the first Christian martyr. And so you want to know what the bottom line is as we wrap things up as the worship team makes their way back up here? 
The bottom line is that God can transform self-righteous hotheads into humble Christian heroes. Isn't that good news? That God can transform humble, I'm sorry, self-righteous hotheads, been there, done that, into humble Christian heroes. He can take our passion and zeal, even though it's often misdirected, and he can transform it to turn us into humble Christian heroes, people who put others first, people who represent Christ authentically. So what changed for James and John? Well, I think they watched Jesus suffer. They watched him die. They watched him rise again. See, the gospel changed. The gospel changed everything for them. Changed everything in their lives, and it can change everything in ours too. And it has to. It can make us like Jesus, and we need to lean into that. We need to make that happen. We need to make that our reality because the world out there desperately needs it. See, James and John came to see that the gospel's for everyone, and they gave their lives to it. And we have to do the same. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you are the God who saves that you are the God who rescues, not because we deserve it. Not while we were yet enemies, you suffered and died for us. Help us not to forget that, Lord. Help us to not lose sight of your mission. And help us to not abuse the power that is available to us. Help us to lean into and leverage the power that is available to us to do your work in this world, to love one another to love those that are far from Christ into your kingdom we love you Lord it's in Jesus name we pray amen